Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit more about headship and submission and hang-ups with people helpers. Uh, But before we jump into that content, I want to remind you of PeaceWorks University. If you listen to the podcast, you know what's coming. Uh, PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from the things that you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, PeaceWorks University is your best next step. We would love to have you be part of our growing community that's learning together about gospel-centered responses to the problem of domestic abuse. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, today we're going to talk a little bit about headship and submission. And I know it's not an uncommon topic for us. It's something that we've talked about before, but we got an interesting question uh, that I thought was worded very, very well. And I want to share that with you guys. So the questioner says, can you speak to some of the ways that you've seen headship and submission passages or principles become a sticking point or a distraction for church leaders and biblical counselors when responding to domestic abuse cases? What a wonderful question. I love the way that is worded about being a sticking point or a distraction. And I want to briefly say before we jump into the content of the question that I think one of the things that we most commonly see is this, is the sticking points, the distractions. I think one of the things we most commonly hear in our discussions is, you know, the theological wars. And and I, I think this is a going to be a great question because oftentimes in conferences or online or in Q&As, we, we find ourselves kind of warring at the periphery uh, as we think about uh, patriarchy, complementarity, egalitarianism, feminism, we we really struggle with the rubber meets the road type of what is happening on the ground among good people in good churches who have good theology as opposed to, you know, what we kind of read in the blogs or what we hear in or see in the comment section or what we hear at the conferences as we get into these debates about Different aspects of um, gender and the church and the family and the spectrum that it sets on, and so I want to say at the outset, I, I love having these discussions uh, in the middle. And what I mean by that is, if if you put this whole discussion on a spectrum, and maybe on the on the far end of one spectrum is like um, male only patriarchy, and it's like that's the extreme, and on the other extreme, you have kind of a progressive new wave feminism that doesn't look much like, you know, your grandmama's feminism. And and we in the middle, both egalitarians and complementarians, point to the extremes to make our case and we rarely talk to each other, then I don't think we're going to find the common ground that we need to actually help victims and hold perpetrators accountable. I saw this not long ago at a conference that I was invited to, a secular conference, where um I had a discussion afterwards with uh, another believer and 
they were really struggling that I would align myself with the complementarians. And um, he was just struggling so much because of so many assumptions, I think. And once we got talking about our relationships, he saw that, you know, his egalitarian relationship and my complementarian relationship were not all that different. We were just starting at different places and starting at different values. And I might contend that my values were a little bit more defined and a little bit more clear. Um, it's not saying that I was right and he was wrong. I'm just saying that I think that, that was the interesting component is to see that I had really thought this through, that I wasn't just parroting a you know male headship, women submit mantra that I had a well-thought uh, value system uh, derived from scripture. And that was a, that was a huge, uh, a huge breakthrough for us as we began to talk about how, you know, perhaps there are many biblical complementarians who practically live in very similar ways to our egalitarian brothers and sisters. And that maybe this conversation isn't so much about the extremes, but it's about the the similarities that we have. And I, even some people will hear that and go, oh, well, Chris has gone off the deep end. Now he's a liberal. And and that's part of our problem, isn't it? That we, we fail in both the church and the culture to have conversations. I recently was in a setting where I was articulating a, a, a system and a process and somebody at the table, you know, shockingly said, that sounds really biblical, as if their assumption was that I wasn't biblical I really try. I mean, I don't hit home runs all the time, but I really try. And I think that was, um, that's the heartbeat of this question, I think, and the heartbeat of the, the response that I want to give. And so let's go back to the question. Can you speak to some of the ways you've seen headship and submission principles and passages become a sticking point or a distraction for church leaders and biblical counselors? And I think the first one is when, Headship and submission become the entire discussion. And what I mean by that is that some folks in our world and in our tribes see abuse work and the domestic abuse conversation in particular as a threat to headship. And, and that grieves me because I think we lose a lot of good ground when we come at the abuse discussion with a preserve headship mind, mindset rather than preserving safety as our mindset and somehow seeing, somehow seeing, and I, I can't quite put my arms around it, um, but I do think this is a sticking point, is that somehow seeing confronting an abuser's sin as the same as undermining his headship. And to me, the response to that is I think we've just got a very narrow view of headship or we're very fearful of authority. And we kind of see authority as the law, the supreme law, rather than seeing love as the supreme law that, that guides us and that directs us. And I think maybe we need a new view of headship. Um, perhaps we just need to talk about headship for a little bit. Well, what is it? What isn't it? And so I think when the entire discussion kind of circles around preserving headship, uh, we've got a problem. And we usually will not get past that. Um, 
without having that thorough discussion of, well, what do you mean by headship? And how is coercive control different from biblical headship? How is power and control viewed scripturally? And I think that's a healthy discussion. I think the second thing is when submission is elevated above headship. So what I mean by that is in abuse cases, sometimes the call for submission carries so much more weight than the call to headship. And what I mean by that is um, the wife held to a high standard of accountability that she has to submit in all things, but the husband held to a low bar of accountability that headship doesn't really mean anything. It just means he's a man rather than actually scripturally defining that and understanding that headship has uh, responsibility attached to it. And that when you continue to defy, deny, misplace, and abuse that responsibility, there's so supposed to be consequences that abandoning this responsibility is a sinful act and it's harming your wife in a significant way because husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. To jettison love and replace it with abuse, to remove respect and replace it with fear is not an act of headship. And so to ignore the sin of uh, dominance and to elevate the, the, the virtue of submission without addressing the other, I think is a problem. And I think that's a hang-up, that submission becomes elevated and headship becomes kind of fuzzy. I think one thing I learned in biblical counseling, and this is like old school biblical counseling, like this is going to, I'm letting my neuthetic show a little bit, all right? So one of the things I learned early on that when you're in a situation with more than one person, you address the most responsible person first. If you're in a parenting situation, you address the parents. If you're in a relational situation, you address the husband. If you're in a church situation, you address the pastor. And the interesting thing is cases of abuse, we've deviated from that for some reason. And so we go, well, yeah, you should respect his authority. Well, his authority is completely undermined by his treachery, by his behavior, by his choices, by his motives. This guy's utterly living in sin. We should hold him to account first. He's the most responsible party. So again, I'm letting my neuthetic show a little bit, but I think we need a little bit more of that in the biblical counseling movement and in the church in general to say, hey, one of the sticking points, one of the ways we're getting distracted is we're making submission the primary theological argument rather than headship. And in cases of abuse, that's what's being abused first is authority, power. And so why are we not addressing that first? I think the third area that kind of gets us stuck is when the bar is set too low, meaning we're having the wrong conversations sometimes. So the questioner asked, you know, in cases of abuse, you know, you're seeing these passages and principles of headship and submission becoming distractions. And I think one of the areas that we have been getting distracted is we're focusing on covenant marriage where there isn't a covenant marriage. We're focusing on principles of headship and submission, and we're not dealing with believers. In particular, a, a husband who persists in using coercive control, power, threat, and fear in their home, we're making an assumption that they know Jesus 
when they may not know Jesus from a hole in the head. So why don't we first establish the gospel and and really understand whether or not they want a Christian marriage? Because most abusive people do not want a Christian marriage. Once they find out what a Christian marriage is, they want nothing to do with it. Because a Christian marriage, especially those of us who are in the complementarian camp, especially those of, as, as, those of us who should be talking about headship and submission from, from a biblical perspective, from a Jesus hermeneutic, from his leadership, his understanding of power, his use of power, as translated then to us as agents of reconciliation, ministers, ambassadors, especially us, when we talk about Christian marriage, abusers want nothing to do with that. Sacrifice, service, forgiveness, gentleness, kindness, graciousness, those are way outside the scope of coercion, control, threat, and fear. And yet somehow we begin our discussion by talking about principles of covenant marriage rather than beginning our discussion with, is dude even saved? Bro, are you even listening and seeing what's happening? I'm scared for you and for your soul. I'm not sure you know who Jesus is. Those are okay conversations to have. And I think one of the de- one of the biggest dilemmas we can we can fall into is establishing the propositional gospel with them. Okay, tell me how you get saved. Most of the guys I work with could tell you exactly how to get saved. Have they done that? Do they live that? Are they trusting Christ for their salvation? Do they depend upon the grace of God? Many do not. And those who do have the highest um, possibility of change and transformation because they have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and change. After all, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But those who deny the gospel through their repeated patterns of behavior need evangelism, not further instruction on covenant marriage that they're not part of. Did I go too far? Maybe I did go too far. <laughs> I get passionate about this because I think that's a huge distraction. I would, I would fail to see the value in teaching practical theology um, to an unbeliever to the degree that we do this. Like it, I, is there healthy principles for an unbeliever to tithe or to give generously? Sure. But if I have an individual who I'm counseling and they're struggling with, um, with shared space or they're struggling with anxiety or depression, am I teaching them principles of worship immediately? Maybe. But if they don't know Jesus, who are they worshiping? Who's, who are they directing their service to if I'm not pointing them to the Savior? And so I, I think to answer the question, that's a big distraction is that we're setting the bar way too low by serving covenant marriages without first addressing the heart and seeing if people even want to be in a Christian marriage. And uh, I, I think we would serve people far greater if we set our standards a little higher, right, and the bar a little higher, uh, rather than um, just kind of rearranging the ships on the Titanic, as it were. 
Um, so those are some of the distractions and some of the sticking points that I see. How do we overcome that? I think we just need to first address our fear. If we're afraid of undermining headship by addressing abuse, then let's address that fear through good education and conversation. Let's talk as an elder board, as a leadership team, about what marriage is and what it's not. What violates the covenant and 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 how that looks and how abuse fits into our understanding of uh, Christian marriage. If submission is overvalued and headship is kind of undervalued, if we hold victims far more accountable to submission than abusers to headship, maybe we need a clear discussion on what headship really is. And and just be honest. If, if, if someone in our group seems to view headship as having the authority, having the power, getting to do what you want, making all the decisions, wow, could we confront that? And just point us back to passages like Matthew 20 and Mark 10 and Philippians 2 and John 13 and remind each other that um, Jesus said it cannot be that way among you and he served us and he didn't come to be served, that he gave his life as a ransom for many, that he um, found it fit to be humbled even to death, death on a cross, that we are called then to love others as he loved us. And so headship is less and less and less about power under and more and more and more about power or excuse me, power over and more and more and more about power under or power with. And let's set our standards high. Let's be evangelistic in our approach. Uh, you know, the old preachers used to say, you got to get them lost before you can get them found. And sometimes, sometimes that's the work that we do when we recognize that this behavior, this motives, these heart uh, realities are far from the work of Christ. And repentance is necessary. Maybe that's repentance for salvation. Maybe it's continued repentance for sanctification. But nonetheless, we have to acknowledge the problem um, and then offer the gospel as a fitting solution. Well, I hope that was helpful, guys. i uh, just so thankful for everybody who is a part of the PeaceWorks podcast, who tunes in week after week after week. And I know that's you. So thank you again for listening. If you enjoy this podcast, would you let the platform you're listening on know? Would you rate, review, subscribe, follow, whatever the platform asks you to do? Would you do that? Shout it from the rooftops how much you appreciate the PeaceWorks podcast. All right, friends, thank you again for being part of the podcast. Until next time, God bless.